All right. We're going to look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy. You should have a copy of the lesson. If you need a copy, uh, raise your hand up and men will see you and bring that by there. And uh, we want to make sure you have a, a copy of the lesson tonight. I want to share a message entitled To Turn or Remain. To Turn or Remain out of Deuteronomy chapter 29 <clears throat> in uh, verse 12. We begin reading verse 12. Hopefully I won't lose my voice. I got a frog in my throat. I'll get rid of it. I figure if I preach hard enough, it's got to leave, right? So <laughs> Deuteronomy 29 in uh, verse 12. That thou shouldest enter into a covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he has said unto thee, and as he has sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And neither uh, with you only do I make this covenant of this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here, with us this day, for ye know how we have dwelt uh, in the land of Egypt, and have we, and how we came through the nations of which ye passed by, and ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, uh, which were among them, uh, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and to serve the gods of these nations, uh, lest there be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, uh, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I, ha I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of, of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall uh, smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. So we want to look at verse 18 as our text verse. It says, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and to serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And so to turn or to remain. The challenge that Moses has given to the children of Israel is God had called them and chosen them to be a people unto himself. But as they were coming into the land that God would give them, uh, they would have to make a decision. Either they're going to continue on with the Lord or they're going to turn away from the Lord. So are you going to turn or are you going to remain? Uh, and that is a challenge that we face today. One of the great challenges in the Christian life is to develop in the next generation a real sold-out commitment for Jesus Christ. And uh, it, it's not just a matter of us living our life for the Lord but it's us impacting the next generation that they will live for God also. And I was challenging my Bible class today about their uh, relationship with Christ and their understanding of who God is. I told them, I said, who is God to you? 
I mean, what does God mean to you? You're in Bible class. You're in a Christian school. So who, how do you identify this God you supposedly serve? Uh, how do you love this God that you supposedly serve? Are you interested in God or are you just coming to school because you have to come to school? Are you in Bible class because you really are hungry for the word or are you just here because you have to take this course in order to graduate? Uh, we have to go beyond just talking about God and, and sharing our, our experiences with God. We need to instill those experiences into others also. Oftentimes, there is a total disconnect due to failure to communicate successfully the reason of why we should live for God. And it's just amazing uh, when you really confront people and you want to hear an answer from them, why are you living for God? Why should you live for God? Uh, they would come up with so many various answers and that are not valid answers at all. And uh, we're, we're, we talk about church, we talk about church growth, we talk about commitment to the Lord, we talk about those that fall by the wayside, we talk about those that are getting on fire for God, uh, but oftentimes this matter of reasoning and successful communication in reference to who Christ is, is overshadowed by hypocrisy and heresy. And uh, I just know this, dealing with teens all the time and dealing with young people, uh, they, they don't want anything phony. They don't want anything presented to them in a way that's not real and it's not sincere. And so if there's one thing we need to do as adults is to realize that either we're going to turn away from the God or we're going to remain with our God. And if we're going to remain with our God, then how are we going to impact the next generation that they might turn their life over to Christ also? And uh, so... There, consequently, there's an ignorance in regards to mentoring for a positive outcome. And I think there's been a lot of negative things that have happened uh, in churches. I think there's a lot of negative things that happen in the life of Christian homes. And as a result of that, that creates a negative response of kids when it comes to serving the Lord and living for God and carrying on the traditions that are passed down to them. So notice some things here as we break apart this verse, verse 18. Notice the concern in verse 18. Uh, he says, uh, lest uh, there should be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe, and here's the concern, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God. That ought to be a real concern for us. That ought to be a concern that when our children are growing up and you see a, a, a spirit of disconnecting with God. I see it in teens. I watch them as they come up. They come out of elementary and they get, become junior hires. And then all of a sudden you see their interests turn to some other thing or someone uh, captures their attention. And then I, I was just thinking the other day, I was over in the teen room. And uh, I saw one of the kids in our church, his Bible, in the teen room. It has been there. I've been just watching and count the weeks. It has been in there for three weeks. And nobody's come and said, oh, I can't find my Bible. I know exactly right where it is. And I'm like, okay, now, and, now listen. And this is a young man who used to have a heart for God. He was hungry for the things of God. But he's not even interested in taking his Bible home with him. 
And uh, that's, that's a major problem. And so he, that's the concern that we have. And I've watched adults, the same thing. Adults will be in church and they'll be growing in the Lord. And all of a sudden, some circumstance or problem comes up in their life. And the next thing you know, there's a disconnect and they turn away from their God. And when they turn away from their God, uh, the concern is that they're going to affect someone else because there's always somebody watching you. There's always somebody that is following you, and then when we uh, turn away from the Lord, we become a stumbling block to others. And so there's a real concern. The concern is uh, we don't want anyone, man or woman or family or tribe or individual, whoever it might be, to turn away from God. And so there's the concern. He also, number six in your notes there, is the consequence. He says, lest they turn away... um, Turn away uh, this day from the Lord our God, and here it is, to go and serve the gods of these nations, uh, um, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. So he's saying there's a consequence. When we turn away from God, he's warning them, when you turn away from the Lord, uh, you're going to embrace false gods. And the false gods that you're going to embrace is going to create a growth of bitterness in you, uh, a, a spirit of resentment uh, in you. And uh, it's just, it's always funny over the years, you know, there's always somebody who's going to get mad about something, you know. And uh, I don't care how great you are or how, how good the church may be, somebody's always going to be mad about something. And uh, I always like it when people get mad at me about something. And then they leave the church, and then I see them in the store. It's, <laughs> I'd say, thank you, Lord. And <laughs> I don't hide in the aisle. I go right over, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. Amen. And uh, they are so bitter. They're so angry. And I'm like, this is the danger. This is the concern that there is a consequence when you turn your back on the Lord, all of a sudden now you're captured by the philosophy of this world, and because you're missing now the blessings of God, it creates a spirit of gall and a wormwood. In other words, a, a souring taste in the spirit of that individual. So the concern, the consequence, and then I see uh, the compassion. Because as he's writing here, uh, he's wanting them to respond to the warning. It's a compassionate plea. Compassion just means to have a deep awareness of suffering with the wish to relieve it. And so when we say we want to have compassion, uh, that means we're not just saying, oh, I love people. Compassion is being moved in your heart to the point where you want to be a help to someone else. That's why Galatians 6 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. What is that verse? It is a verse that identifies compassion. It is a, a, a deep, loving concern for someone that's just not saying, Well, it's too bad they fell by the wayside. But it's saying, wait a minute, I want to do whatever I can to restore them and bring them back in their relationship with the Lord. In Mark chapter 6, 34, 
And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, was moved with compassion towards them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So he saw their condition. He saw them wondering about a sheep with no shepherd. And because of his compassion, he stretched out to them and reached out to them and started teaching them many things so as to be able to solve the problem or to relieve their pain. And so this matter of do you turn or do you remain, uh, there's somebody that God wants you to reach out to and be a help to uh, that has fallen by the wayside so that you can help them to get back in relationship with the Lord. So we see the concern, we see the consequence, we see the compassion, and certainly we see love. Love is simply an intense feeling of deep affection. And certainly as uh, Moses is writing this to the children of Israel, he's writing it from the perspective of God's love for them. But he's writing it out of a heart that's moved up for love for his own people. And uh, John 13, Jesus said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And so the, the desire of God through Moses in this chapter is to watch out for those that may fall by the wayside and they may turn instead of remain, then uh, because God loves you, then you need to love them and you need to do what you can to bring them back to the Lord. And so do we turn away or do we remain with God? And there's always, seems like the world always gives you justification to turn away from God. But I listen, I have never seen anything positive happen in anybody's life who turned their back on their God. And uh, yes, the problems and there are difficulties and there are discouragements and, uh, what, that we go through in life. But the difference is for the believers, we have Christ with us and he never abandons us. And so turn or remain. Do we turn or remain? Well, here's some things that are caused. Uh, people to turn, and some things that will help us to enable them to remain. And so we'll go through these things. First of all, I thought of this, conviction minus compassion equals contention. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about when we develop convictions, supposed convictions, that we have no love backing our convictions where we are forcing others to conform to our convictions and what happens, it causes contention. In other words, you, you need to tell your kids where they need to be, what they need to be doing, how they're to dress, how they're to act or whatever. But if there's no love there, uh, then all you're gonna do is create contention. Uh, oftentimes I've seen over the years in churches, people will be focused on uh, supposed conviction that is nothing more than preferences. A conviction is something that you're willing to die for. A preference is something that you would prefer to take place. There's a lot of things I would prefer to see take place in church. Uh, but I'll tell you the things that I have convictions about, uh, I'm willing to die for. The doctrines of the faith. I'm willing to die for those things. 
And, uh, but when it comes to this matter of, of uh, conforming, that's your first point, conformity, what happens, you, your focus is conformity. And I remember I was in Dividing Creek years ago, pastoring down there, a fellow came into my church, and uh, I mean, he lived on the street. He really literally, literally for years lived on the street. Uh, no family background whatsoever, just dysfunctional drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, he was a drug addict. Uh, he came into the church. He had a beard down to here. I mean, it was down there. His hair was down to over his shoulders. And uh, now in most situations, we would try to tell somebody, you got to get your beard shaved. you got to get your hair cut. you got to straighten up yourself here, clean yourself up. I never once said anything to him. I believe a man ought to have short hair. I think a woman ought to have long hair. I think a man comes in the pulpit to preach, teach, ought to wear a coat and tie. I just believe there's things, standards that we ought to have in how we present ourselves. But God has to do the cleaning up. And so here we go. He's Instead of confronting him about that, I just did discipleship with him. I never said anything to him about it at all. One day he showed up, and uh, his beard was shaved off. And uh, he kept following me around. I knew what he was up to. And he kept following me around. His beard was shaved. He had his hair cut. And uh, finally I said, you know, I was talking to him. I even forget his name now. This is 35 years ago. And uh, uh, finally he looked at me, and he said, Pastor, Aren't you going to say anything about my haircut and my beard? And I was like, and I said, yeah, man, you look right sharp there, man. That's great. That's all he said. But he was so excited about the fact that, that God had convicted him about changing his appearance. And, you know, that was something that was real. That was something that was sincere. That was not something that was imposed upon him. And what happens a lot of times, we impose our own convictions on somebody or our own preferences on somebody, and then we wonder why they get mad. Now, I believe in standards, and I, I don't let down on the standards whatsoever. We have requirements for leadership and all this, that, and the other. But I know this, God can do a better job cleaning us up than what we can. And God always cleans us up. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 7, it says, Do you look on things after the outward appearance? You know, it's amazing. Uh, well, uh, a lot of times that's what we do. We look on the outward appearance of people. I remember I was in a church down in uh, uh, just outside of Virginia Beach years ago. My wife and I were on vacation, and we went to this church. And I had heard about the church. I wanted to go there. And uh, God was doing some great things. People were being saved from all kinds of backgrounds. And I'll never forget, I, I was sitting in that church, and the preacher was preaching. He was about halfway through his message. And there was a prostitute that came to church that day. And she was dressed like a prostitute. And she sat about halfway down the, the aisle. That church ran about seven, 800 people in it. And all of a sudden, I saw her right in the middle of the message. She got under conviction. And she got up out of her seat and came down the center aisle. The preacher never missed a lick. He just kept on preaching. 
And one of the deacons came over and started talking to her. A lady got together with her, led her to Christ. She got saved while the preaching was going on. God can do stuff like that. We kind of want to put God in conforming to what our thought process is and don't save somebody until the invitation comes. Well, God can save them right in the middle of the service. Amen. And so he says, do you look on the things after the outward appearance? And what I was so thankful for is that woman never had one person look at her funny because she came in dressed like a prostitute. And yet, many times what we do is we see people come into the church and because they might not dress like we do or look like we do or act like we do, we look at them with disdain because we want to conform them. How dare you come in our church looking like that? We want to conform them. When I was down in Dividing Creek, that church was started in 1767. And anybody who was in that church grew up in that church as kids. And from generation to generation, they were there. And I, when I went down there, I started going soul winning. And I was out knocking on doors and knocking on doors. And I was leading people to the Lord. Well, the, the, the problem was this. We started having African-Americans come to church. We started having Hispanics come to church. And you know what happened? Some of the people that were older people that grew up in that church had a problem with that. They didn't like the idea that there was other nationalities and other races coming into the church. And I confronted that stuff real quick. Uh, our goal was not to make people like us. We're all different, different backgrounds, different character traits, different nationalities, but God loves us all the same. And we don't judge people based on their outward appearance. And so I didn't mean to say all that, but I couldn't get it past that first verse. I mean, first sentence. Do you, do you look on things after the outward appearance? That is a challenge to us. And the reason why it's a challenge, because man looks on the outward, God looks on the heart. And we got to let God give his spiritual eyes. He says that any man trusts himself that he is Christ, then let him of himself, think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. And so he's saying, wait a minute, you got to be careful. Don't be judging and evaluating things on outward appearance because you want to force conformity because that's your goal. we got to get people doing and acting and responding exactly the way we act and respond and the way we do. And he said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Why? Because conviction minus compassion always ends up in contention because the goal is wrong. Our goal is not to get people to conform to what we desire for them to be. Our goal is for them to surrender a life to Jesus Christ and be conformed to the image of the Son of God. That's the goal. And so conformity is the goal. When conviction has no compassion that develops a contention, that means reputation is the guide. Reputation is the guide. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that I've pastored three churches. One I started, the second one I took was Dividing Creek Baptist Church, and the third church I've been to and been at is this church. And the amazing thing is this, all three of those churches, I've had people tell me when I was making a decision about going to them that you shouldn't go there. 
And people told me I shouldn't go to Oakhurst to start a church. And uh, he said, they, they told me that church, would, if I went up there, I'd never make it. And uh, it would tear me apart. I went to Dividing Creek. I had several of my friends tell me, oh, you don't want to go down there. That thing will ruin your reputation. That's what they said. And I said, why is that church going to ruin my reputation? That church is old. It's a board-run church. I used to be an American Baptist church that became an independent Baptist church because of the compromise of the American Baptist uh, Convention. And those folks had a heart for God and, and took a stand on things. But what was it? Your reputation. Your reputation. My reputation is not my guide. Jesus Christ is my guide. And I remember when I came here, I had preachers calling me up and tell me I shouldn't come here. And then I had preachers mad at me when I did come here. So, you know, uh, they're just going to have to get over it. Amen. It's been a good 24 years. I don't know if it's been good for you, but it's been good for me. Proverbs 26 and 17 he that passes by and meddleth with strife belongeth not to him. It is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. You know, your dog, our dog, my dog would not like it if I grabbed him by the ears. Amen. And so we got to be careful how we respond to things. In Proverbs chapter 28 and uh, verse uh, 25, Proverbs 28, 25, says, He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. But he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. And you say, well, you, why you need to lose weight? Because I trust in the Lord, so he makes me fat. Amen. But anyway, you got to, the proud stirreth up strife. Whenever we're, we're driven by reputation, whenever we're driven by our personal goals and our personal gains in our life, it always causes contention. In Proverbs chapter 30, in uh, verse 30, Three says, uh, well, surely, is it 33? Yeah, surely uh, the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. So the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. And so th there's enough to, to contend with, enough to deal with uh, in the world in which we live in. We do not have to drive people away from Christ because we're more worried about our reputation than we are trying to disciple them and encourage them to be in Christ. And so conviction, which is your personal conviction that you establish, minus compassion always equals contention. And then strife is always the outcome. Strife is always the outcome. We've been going, I just went through the book of James in my Bible class. And I'd like to read James chapter 3, because James hits the nail right on the head when it comes to this matter about strife uh, in the church. And I'll get over there pretty soon. And James chapter 3 and verse 14 says, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And so we have to be careful when we talk about, we're concerned about people either turning away from God or staying with the Lord. Uh, we have to assess and evaluate, uh, how am I impacting people around me? Am I more worried about conformity? Am I worried about reputation? 
Am I just wanting to argue, be argumentative and debate about things? Uh, I'll guarantee if all you want to do is impose and drive yourself uh, on people and have not the love of Christ in your heart, it will only end in contention. And so conviction minus compassion equals contention. Number two, well, I'm running out of time already. Compassion, here we go, building a little bit. Compassion minus conviction equals compromise. See, it's just as dangerous to have conviction without compassion because of the conflict that it builds. It's just as dangerous to have compassion but have no conviction because compassion without conviction now leads to compromise. What does it do? Letter A, it develops a child-centered home. I did a whole series quite a few years ago on a child-centered home. I see it, I see it almost every day in our school. I see it constantly. Uh, and, and I see conflicts between mom and dad because of this thing, whole issue of dealing with children. And uh, oftentimes what happens is the dad will say, well, I think this child needs to be disciplined in this way and he cannot continue to live and respond to this. And mom comes along and says, oh, but he's so cute and I love him. And, you know, and right away you got a conflict. What, what's, what's the conflict? It's compassion with no conviction. And if you have compassion with no conviction, it's going to lead to compromise. And then what happens is the students come in our school. Now we got to deal with those students who have been treated that way. They've always been lovey, lovey, lovey and no discipline. And then they come into school and you say, well, wait, well, this child just won't get with the program. They compromise on everything. And the parents will always let down the guard. Well, it does the same thing in our, in our personal life. If all I have is comp uh, compassion and I don't have any conviction of, as far as things to stand on, the foundation of what my life is, uh, I, I'm, what's going to happen, I'm going to compromise with anything that comes along. And uh, present-day Christianity in America is struggling with this whole thing because everything's about the grace of God, and I believe it's about the grace of God. But there is still the wrath and the chastisement of God also. And uh, we're struggling with this whole thing that, well, we're just supposed to love everybody. Yes, we are supposed to love everybody, but you're not supposed to embrace and accept the teachings of a heretic. And, 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 and we're struggling with that whole concept of how do you respond in these situations? Well, you got to have love. We're going to see in a moment, but you got to have love, but you can't have compassion to the point where it eliminates your ability to live a life that's uncompromising. And why? Because in your home, it'll develop a child-centered home. Everything, that decision you make is going to be based on what does that child want. And the reality is there are things your child may want that are not good for them. And so mom and dad need to be mom and dad and make that decision for them. And so there has to be that whole conviction that will not, uh, that'll prevent you from falling into compromise. Well, it develops also a seared conscience. Paul tells Timothy that, that in the, about the last days, that men will have a seared conscience. And being seared conscience just means to be branded by a mark of their own, by their own sin. And so if you just, 
it constantly just trying to be compassionate and there's no conviction or no guidelines, uh, somewhere there's going to be compromise where now we just become justified in our own eyes. We become satisfied with ourselves and then we compromise for every, on everything. It not only develops a, a, a child-centered home and, a, and a, a, a seared conscience, but it develops an unethical church. And uh, this, this matter of uh, compassion with no conviction always develops an unethical church. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? See, the, the fact that they were compassionate without any guidelines or without any conviction, it caused an unethical relationship in the church. We know there was incest going on in the church at Corinth. He said they had strife. In that church, they had envy in that church. I mean, there was all kinds of problems in the Corinthian church. And I believe it's because of the fact they had to either stay with their God on the convictions of who their God was, or they were going to turn and try to make decisions according to the world. And it causes an unethical church. Here's some good quotes. I'll put them in your notes. If you constantly compromise things in your life, how will you ever realize your full potential? I came across that quote. I said, man, that's, that's a good quote. If I'm just constantly giving up on whatever God's leading me to do because I have to compromise to get along, then how am I ever going to develop the full potential? And I've just seen over the years, any time you try to take a stand for God, you try to live for the Lord, and, and you try to be a testimony for Christ, there's always somebody that's going to be upset about that. And you'll never reach your full potential until you understand that I have to have compassion, but my compassion has to have conviction also. I like what Mar Margaret Thatcher said. said, if you just set out to be liked, you would be prepared to compromise on anything at any time, and you would achieve nothing. And so I, I think a lot of Christians are spinning their wheels and running in circles because we're just, we're just trying to appease everybody. We're just trying to fit in with everything. And the reality is we're different. We're peculiar people. That's what Peter tells us. We're a holy nation. We're a chosen people. Uh, it's amazing that we, we, we can't live in that realm, that comprehension that God makes us different. So... Uh, we need a conviction minus compassion equals contention. Compassion minus conviction equals compromise. Number three, conviction plus compassion equals consistency. And so it doesn't mean we can't have compassion. We can't have convictions. It just has to be put in the right perspective. And so letter A there, correction that brings change. And Proverbs has quite a few verses here that you can look up and we don't have time to look all these verses up, but conviction that brings change. Correction, I'm sorry, that brings change. 
if I have the conviction of the Spirit of God on me, he's going to give me compassion for others. And the compassion that I have for others will develop in me a desire to be consistently demonstrating the grace of God in my life. So it's motivated. Number one, it's motivated by love. We're not motivated by conformity. We're motivated by love. Hearing is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So we're motivated by love. Uh, it's Number two, there's just simply, it's, it's an unconditional love. Uh, God loves us unconditionally. He didn't say, if you do A, B, C, and D, I'll save you. No, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's an unconditional love. And then it's an enduring love. Paul would say, who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? It's an enduring love. And so in our relationships with each other, do we turn away from God? Do we remain? Do we help others to refuse to turn away from God? How can we help them to remain? Then we need to have correction that brings change because they're, they're motivated. They're stirred. They're excited about living for God because they know God's love isn't uncompromising. It's an unconditional love. It's an enduring love. And now they have a reason for living for the Lord. I didn't, I didn't surrender to go into full-time ministry because I felt compelled that I had to, to in order to be spiritual. I, I went into ministry because of the fact that I was motivated by the love of God that saved me. Why wouldn't somebody tell me 27 years of my life, why wouldn't somebody love me enough to tell me how to be saved? And so the change that takes place is based on the unconditional enduring love. So conviction, uh, correction that brings change, and letter B, is conscience that believes courageously. And we need to have our conscience not seared. We need our conscience that is strong enough to believe God that we're courageous in living our Christian life. Number one, there is the necessity of prayer. Men are always to pray and how we need to pray. Uh, we need to be reminded that God is near. A couple weeks ago, I preached a message uh, entitled, I am with you. And the reality in that message is there's never a time when you're away from God. There's never a time when God is not with you. And so I can, I can have conviction and compassion that will create a sense of consistency in my life. I was listening to a preacher the other day on the radio, and he said he was at a major conference with several thousand uh, Christians there and Christian workers and pastors and missionaries and all that. And they did a survey at that conference and said, uh, with how many people, they did a survey, how, many, how much time do you spend in prayer every day? The average time that those people that were there prayed was five minutes. Five minutes a day. Then he said this, I want to do a survey of pastors, missionaries, full-time Christian workers. How much time? He said, well, they did better. It was seven minutes a day. Now, conviction that is based upon the compassion or love of Christ is going to create in me consistency. And it's going to create consistency in prayer. 
and it's going to create consistency in the reality that God is with me, and it's going to create a testimony that is sincere. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians in 1.12, a testimony that is sincere. We're not play actors. We are real people. I remember Dr. Malone always used to tell us, men, be real with people. Just be who you are. And so be real. Uh, motivation is what gets you started. Habit is what keeps you going. Consistency in reference to the love and the compassion of God for us. C.S. Lewis said, faith is the art of holding on to things in spite of your changing moods and circumstances. And you realize every day everything changes. Every day everything changes. If that's true, then I need to have conviction that's driven by the compassion of God so that I'll keep doing the things that are going to help me to grow. That's going to keep me where I need to be. I'm going to remain there. I don't want to drift off to the side. I don't want to turn to the side. And then the last thought is this. Consistency plus contentment equals character. And consistency plus contentment. And uh, certainly that will develop according to Colossians 4.12. It stands on its piety. In other words, the consistency that creates a satisfaction with God will always give you a willingness to be pious. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a positive way. You'll be committed to serving and living for the Lord. That's the second point, letter B. And uh, this contentment will develop, uh, serves with sincerity. And we need to serve God with our whole life, with all that we are. And uh, I'll do that if I have been consistent. I'm, I'm consistent with my walk with God, my reading of scriptures, my surrendering my life to the Lord. And as I do that, I'm satisfied with Christ and Christ alone. So it stands on his piety, it serves with sincerity, and it surrenders scripturally. And we must surrender our lives every day unto the Lord. I like what Oswald Chambers said. <coughs> the expression of Christian character is not good doing, but God-likeness. I, I, man, I came across, I never read this quote before. It spoke to my heart. The expression of Christian character is not good doing, but God-likeness. If the Spirit of God has transformed you within, ye, you will exhibit divine characteristics in your life, not good human characteristics. God's life in us expresses itself as God's life, not as human life trying to be godly. And I read that, I said, that, boy, that's it. That is the problem. That is the problem because we, we base spirituality on what our perception is of what is good, and that's based on how human beings live. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't live to fulfill, fulfill good things that human beings do. We live to be like God. For whom the Lord did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. It is not about me conforming to what the world has stated, this is good and this is bad. No, I'm to live in light of 
being molded in the image of the Son of God, and I want to live out God's life, not human life that is good, because God's life will always be good. And so, do we turn to the side, or do we remain? I think we can remain if we follow these few little simple principles. I think we can help our children. If there's one thing, I've I just been in Bible class. I'll tell you, I'm burdened for the kids in our school. I'm burdened for them. Because I'm going to tell you, they, they do not have the concept of what it means to be spiritual. I see it in their faces because their idea of spirituality is what is good things that human beings do. And they have not connected with the reality of who God is. Our God is great. I told him, I said, how would you explain the awesomeness of God? If I was to ask you, can you explain to me who God is and how awesome he is, what would you say? And I could see fear come on their faces. They thought I was going to call on somebody. But I, that's one thing I enjoy as a teacher. <laughs> you have questions and you watch. And when the people look at you, they always look around. So what I do is whenever somebody looks at me, I say, you looked at me. What's the answer? Amen. But anyway... Uh, to turn or remain, we need to remain. We need to stay faithful to our God, and we need to pray and strive to get our young people uh, to be uh, surrendered completely to the Lord also. Well, I hope that was a help to you tonight. There's